1: Commander Charles Haffenden of the United States Office of Naval Intelligence contacted attorney Moses Polakoff, who represented several prominent American mob bosses, for help. They wanted to recruit heavy hitters in the American mafia to help with preventing potential sabotage, espionage, or strikes, by waterfront workers in New York City, especially in potentially other East Coast ports, where most of the longshoremen and other workers were in mafia-controlled unions. Also, the Office of Naval Intelligence, or ONI for short, was interested in gaining intelligence and assistance from American mobsters for the Allied invasion of Sicily, which was being planned for the following year. The day after he was initially contacted by ONI, Polakoff went to Longchamp's restaurant in Manhattan and hosted a meeting there between members of ONI and one Meyer Lansky, the famous Jewish organized crime mastermind. Lansky suggested that ONI worked with his longtime friend and partner, Charles Lucky Luciano, and Lansky vouched for Luciano's patriotism and trustworthiness. Luciano was at the time serving a 30- to 50-year prison sentence, having been convicted by a New York court of 62 counts of forced prostitution. He'd been serving his sentence in the remote Clinton State Prison, but was quickly transferred to Great Meadow Prison in Comstock to make meetings with ONI personnel More convenient. From these meetings began an alliance between U.S. intelligence agencies and some of America's top Italian and Jewish mobsters. An alliance that would last for at least a few more decades, if not longer. An alliance that, without question, boosted global narcotics traffic, included plots to assassinate Fidel Castro, and which may possibly have also been involved in the killing of John F. Kennedy. This is CJ, your humble, hazardous history helmsman, as always manning the ramparts of the southern frontier of the invisible anarchist empire, that great, pernicious conspiracy to leave you the hell alone. Here with episode 117 of the Dangerous History Podcast, and in this episode, I'm going to be telling you some of the story of a project known as Operation Underworld and its legacies, a project in which Uncle Sam got in bed with a bunch of real-life Corleones and Sopranos, allying with them initially under the auspices of World War II, and then when that conflict was over, keeping the Alliance going in various ways for the purpose of carrying out secret and shady Cold War operations, especially in Mediterranean Europe and Latin America. But I have a few things I have to take care of before we launch into the rest of this episode, and first of all, of course, are the Patreon shoutouts, I have four awesome individuals to thank this episode. Big thank yous to Jesse, Scott, Al, and Kyle for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And to those of you listening, if you like this show and want to really help keep it afloat and keep it constantly improving, please consider supporting the show. There's a variety of ways you can do it. One of the most helpful is on a per-episode donation basis through Patreon. And if you sign up for at least $1 or more per-episode donation, I'll thank you by name in the next episode I make. And in addition, you'll have access to special bonus episodes of the Dangerous History Podcast, available nowhere else. And you'll be eligible to join, if you so choose, the private, closed Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. Also, I have a thank you to give out to a mystery benefactor, regarding a couple of things that recently arrived for me off of the Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, And these were used books, so I didn't get any sort of a note from the seller saying who would purchase them on my behalf. But big thank yous to whoever you are who ordered these for me. They came together, so obviously the same person ordered both from the same used bookseller. And the books in question were first... The Mafia, CIA, and George Bush by Pete Bruton, and the other book is The Praetorian Guard, The U.S. Role in the New World Order by John Stockwell. Both of like very interesting books, but like I said, didn't get any kind of a note from whoever ordered them for me, so thank you, Mystery Benefactor. I really appreciate it. And of course, that's another way you can help out the show, is by ordering something for me off of that wish list on Amazon to help out the show. Last thing I want to mention before I get into the rest of the story of Operation Underworld and its legacy is I have a charity to plug at the request of my friend Christops from the Eastern Border podcast, and it's a charity helping out those with visual problems and eyesight impairment that was begun or is going to be begun by a friend of his. And I'll go ahead and read to you the plug that he sent me for that. And I will put a link to the Indiegogo page for this charity in the show notes for this episode at my website. And here we go. Eyesight Stories is a nonprofit organization created with the aim to provide support and information for vision impaired and blind people. We have created a YouTube channel and website where people with eyesight problems share their personal experience, providing both emotional support and practical advice for those who face these issues. When we interviewed vision-impaired people, they frequently mentioned understandable information and personal approach as two very important factors. Our hope is that the stories we'll share will uncover options they didn't know existed and give them strength to face their challenges. Our project began in Eastern Europe, in Latvia, but our aim is to gather information from around the world and make it available to everyone. We would like to provide professional voiceovers in English and other languages as well, so that the information and stories would be understood everywhere. The project could ultimately become a support platform for people in immediate need of help, for example, medical operations or other critical cases. Vision-impaired people will participate in our project as employees to help with many of the tasks needed to achieve these goals. The project was started by two Latvian guys, and we have carried it this far on our own despite our financial limitations, but to reach out further and make this dream happen, we need your help. Thanks to your involvement, we will be able to make this world easier to access for vision-impaired people and give them the possibility to voice their needs and to better integrate into society. To support us, please visit our Indiegogo generosity page. Every bit of support will help us make the world better for those in need together. And again, I will put a link to that page in the show notes for this episode. This is episode 117, again, of the Dangerous History Podcast. So here we are on the cusp of this very interesting and dark story of kind of covert American and world history. But before I take the plunge and launch us all fully into the heart of darkness, as it were, I just want to say that this should be, this episode should be considered... Merely a primer to this whole story, and not by any means the final word on it. Alfred McCoy, for just one example, has hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of extremely detailed, meticulously documented research on a lot of things related to this, as do many other good researchers. And again, as always, there will be links to some relevant books and material in the show notes for this episode. And this is just me providing an introduction to a lot of the highlights and important things we know and don't know about this story as best I can in a single Dangerous History podcast episode. There's a lot more to this story than what I have here is what I'm saying. But A, I haven't read everything pertaining to this story yet and don't know if I'll ever be able to do so simply because of all that's out there. And B, there's a lot we'll probably never know for certain about this story for obvious reasons. And C, I want this episode to just be a good primer, a good solid introduction and overview survey of some of the important aspects of this whole topic. And one more thing I want to specify before we take the leap, just for clarity's sake, the name Operation Underworld specifically refers to the collaboration between Uncle Sam and the Mafia during World War II. However, to me, given how much continuity there is in personnel and approach, it's just impossible to separate further collaborations that continued on for decades into the Cold War from the original alliance created during World War II, which is why I chose not to stop this Episode story with 1945, but instead to carry it into the 1970s at least. So here we go, launching another peaceful intellectual jihad of dangerous history and personal and mental liberation. I present for your consideration and enjoyment Operation Underworld. So we start with the origins of this whole thing in the early days of American participation in World War II. ONI, remember that's Office of Naval Intelligence, was interested in aligning with the American branch of the Mafia, not only because, like I said before, they controlled the waterfront in New York and other places, but again, they also wanted help with the Allied invasion and occupation of Sicily and then later of Italy itself. And they knew, ONI knew, that the Sicilian mafia hated Italian dictator Benito Mussolini and his regime because the Sicilian mob had been almost fatally prosecuted by Mussolini's government in Italy. And it really hung on on only in a few remote areas. And so from ONI's perspective, this looked like a very useful alliance to cultivate as a sort of enemy of my enemy as my friend kind of a thing. In February 1942, the French cruise ship Normandy, which I believe was the largest cruise ship, the largest passenger liner in the world at the time, was parked in New York Harbor and was in the process of being converted into an Allied troop transport ship, and then it sunk. Mob boss Albert Anastasia, who I think may have been a little bit mentally not all there, Claimed responsibility for this, and ONI suspected it may have been done on behalf of the Axis powers. However, after the war, it was discovered that there was no evidence of any German or Italian government involvement in this sinking, and in fact, a congressional investigation suggested the sinking of the ship was most likely an accident. Not even the work of American freelancers with no connections directly to any Axis government or anything like that. Simply an accident. By the way, Notice how many times a maritime incident and or ONI itself has been an important part of instigating American wars and covert ops and that sort of thing. Everything from Remember the Maine to the Gulf of Tonkin, Pearl Harbor itself is a naval incident, and then, of course, the sinking of the Normandy here. And I'm not saying they're all false flags, but they're certainly all things where the truth is pretty hard to ascertain, and very often, at the, at the least, it's cases where there's an accident that happened that immediately gets treated as if it's some sort of enemy attack or sabotage, oftentimes justifying some sort of war or operation. That's why I do plan on, eventually, once I've accumulated enough research, doing a, an episode or two just on the history of ONI, because they are so important to so much of America's secret history, and they're so often overlooked. The CIA, deservedly, gets a lot of attention, but ONI is older than the CIA, and their fingerprints are all over a bunch of shady stuff, and they rarely get the spotlight on them. Well, anyway, like we said, acting apparently under the auspices of the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and assuming, of course, despite the investigation that said otherwise, that, you know, Italian-American dockworker saboteurs must have been behind the whole thing, the Office of Naval Intelligence had decided to make an alliance between the U.S. government and La Cosa Nostra. O&I initially tried to work with a guy named Joseph Joe Sox Lanza, who ran the rackets at the Fulton Fish Market in New York City, But they quickly decided to look even higher up the mob chain of command because Lanza was really sort of a mid-level guy, and they wanted to be able to forge an alliance that would allow them to control the entire waterfront. And this led them to get in touch with Meyer Lansky, and from there to Luciano and some other prominent mob figures. Now, Luciano was a new generation of mafia boss who had set aside the traditional mafia aversion to getting involved in drugs and prostitution there was kind of an old-school traditional mafia view that those things are not things that quote-unquote men of honor should be involved with but by the time luciano's generation rose to power within the organization they had decided that the money and power from things like drugs and prostitution was so great that it wasn't worth abstaining from these lucrative trades just to protect some aura of tradition and honor. But prior to the rise of Luciano, La Cosa Nostra, like I said, had stayed out of these industries, and this had resulted in Jewish mobsters for a while dominating narcotics and prostitution. But then, as of the early 1930s, just as alcohol prohibition was being repealed, no coincidence, Luciano and some other rising young Italian mob stars set aside these traditional taboos and plunged wholeheartedly into drugs and prostitution in order to take up the slack from losses due to the legalization of alcohol. Anytime you have an organized crime syndicate in kit profiting greatly from something that is illegal, history and economic logic shows that the best way to... Take that money and power away from those criminals is simply to legalize whatever it is that they are getting so much money and power off of providing on the black market. And so when alcohol was re-legalized, the mafia had to very quickly shift into things that were still illegal in order to keep their money and power where it was. Likewise today, the people who would be the most terrified if the United States government ever stopped the war on drugs and legalized everything... Would be the current cartel kingpins of providing those things. Luciano was also an innovator in that he was really key in helping to organize the American mafia into. A much more systematic and well-run kind of mixture of a cartel and a franchise system as we typically think of the mafia today and he was smart enough to realize the value of making an alliance with another genius of organized crime meyer lansky lucky luciano also realized the potential for combining heroin and prostitution by getting his prostitutes hooked on heroin so that they would be docile dependent workers And by 1935, Luciano had over a thousand prostitutes working for him at a couple hundred brothels in the New York City area. But then it all came crashing down, seemingly at least, and for the the next few years, when in 1936, New York prosecutor and future governor Thomas Dewey got Luciano busted and convicted on 62 counts of forced prostitution, again, sentencing him to 30 to 50 years in prison for it. Supposedly, investigators also had evidence to bust Luciano on narcotics-related charges, but they decided that it wasn't worth the trouble to pursue these in court because they already had him for so much prostitution charges. Shows you how, while things like heroin were already illegal in the United States, the war on drugs was not yet the, the massive priority of U.S. law enforcement that it has been now since the 1970s. And Luciano's conviction was A huge blow to the Italian-American mafia to have their genius, one of their genius masterminds locked in prison. Obviously, it doesn't end the organization, but it certainly hobbles it a lot. And for a while, it looked like some other top mob bosses connected to him might be looking at arrest and conviction very soon as well. So, by the eve of World War II, the mafia in America wasn't doing that well. They weren't in as dire of straits as the mafia in, in Italy, which had faced assault by the fascists, but, you know, you've got Luciano in prison, you've got associates of his now also in the government's crosshairs, and then over in Italy, their, their cousins and, you know, associates over there, their franchisees over there, had been busted up badly by Mussolini for years but then things all changed. They began to turn around when the Office of Naval Intelligence decided to reach out to these people to work with them, and this all opened the door to decades of various types of connection and collaboration between various U.S. intelligence agencies on the one hand and various powerful mob factions on the other. After the meeting between members of ONI and Meyer Lansky that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Lansky met frequently— with Luciano once Luciano was transferred to Great Meadow Prison, and Lansky acted as the middleman between Luciano and ONI, so that ONI would not be obviously directly having meetings with one of America's most notorious gangsters. During this time, ONI began bringing in Sicilian mobsters who were recommended by Luciano to... Their offices. So these mobsters are getting brought into the ONI offices in New York to gather intelligence and accumulate contacts to be used for the Allied invasion of Italy. And so as a result of this, ONI began compiling lists of Sicilians who were still in Italy, including mobsters, who they thought might be helpful to Allied forces once they got into the country. And when the Allies invaded Sicily in July of 1943, the OSS was unusually left kind of out of the loop. Now, the OSS, if you don't know, was the World War II era kind of precursor to the CIA. OSS stood for Office of Strategic Services. It was created, I think, also in 1942 and was formally disbanded a few months after the official end of World War II. Now, it came back just a few years later, bigger and badder than ever, with a new name, the CIA. And usually, once it was created and up and running, OSS was at the forefront of American covert ops and this sort of thing. But in this situation, the ONI kind of blocked them and ran the show as far as the Allied invasions of of Sicily and then later mainland Italy. And we have accounts from a few OSS agents who were supposed to be involved with the Allied invasion of Sicily, who were kind of a little bit put off that they were sort of left behind. The OSS men who were to accompany the invasion of Sicily were told to wait until days after the landing to go in, while at the same time, ONI agents were accompanying the landing forces and getting in right away. Commander Paul Alfieri, an ONI agent who accompanied the invasion, was very quickly able to start contacting Sicilian mobsters and recruiting them to use as sources of intelligence and even as guides for Allied forces. Now, some of the exact details about ONI's relationship with Sicilian mobsters during the Allied invasion may not ever be known because they've been kept secret and possibly lost to the ravages of time, but there's good reason to believe the collaboration was extensive. Some believe the Mafia's assistance was very helpful to the Allies in Sicily. Italian Mafia expert Michel Pantaleoni, for one, believed that the Mafia deserved a lot of the credit for how quickly Patton's army in particular was able to move in Sicily. ONI seems to have worked pretty closely with Sicilian mob boss Don Calogero Vicini to smooth out the invasion and the occupation of the country. Historian Alfred McCoy, in The Politics of Heroin, which talks about a lot of this stuff, writes, quote, While the role of the mafia is little more than a historical footnote to the Allied conquest of Sicily, the mafia's cooperation with the American military occupation was important. Although there is room for speculation about Luciano's precise role in the invasion— there can be little doubt about the relationship between the mafia and the American military occupation, end quote. The goal of the Allied militaries was, after taking Sicily, to be able to occupy and hold the island with as few troops as possible so that more would then be freed up to invade the mainland of the Italian peninsula. So, the U.S. armies civil affairs control office appointed mobsters to key local government positions in sicily to make it more likely that the allies could successfully occupy sicily with a minimum number of troops alfred mccoy writes of this quote under the command of colonel charles paletti the former lieutenant governor of new york the allied military government or amgot selected mafiosi as mayors in many towns across western sicily whether Poletti was simply supporting the military's alliance with the mafia, or had personal ties to the underworld through his career in New York politics, is difficult to determine. Several months later, the colonel would appoint fugitive New York gangster Vito Genovese as his interpreter, and after the war, Luciano was quoted as calling Poletti, quote, one of our good friends, end quote. And if you know anything about La Cosa Nostra, you know how much seemingly innocuous generic little phrases like one of our good friends can convey really important facts about who's really connected to who. If I'm not mistaken, the formal name of the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, actually translates to English as our thing. Nice and innocuous sounding. Rather generic, almost like a lot of government names for agencies and things. Vito Genovese and his connections to the U.S. government during World War II is a very interesting story. Genovese had left New York in 1937 and fled to Naples in Italy to escape prosecution, I believe related to some murders in America in the 1930s. Now, with the Allied invasion of Italy, he came under the protection of AMGOT, the Allied military government. And under this arrangement, Genovese found himself able to run a vast black market operation in Italy, much of it, by the way, based on stealing and then reselling U.S. Army supplies and even vehicles. Eventually, in 1944, Genovese was busted for this. There was apparently a U.S. Army sergeant who had a commitment to law and order and the rules who could not be bent either by Genovese or by people up the chain of command. Genovese was arrested and deported by this U.S. Army investigator. His name was Sergeant Orange Dickey. I kid you not, his name was Orange Dickey. When Dickey arrested Genovese, Genovese tried to bribe him to let him go, supposedly offering him a bribe of $250,000, which you don't need me to tell you, in 1944, that's a hell of a lot of money. And when Dickey refused to accept the bribe, Genovese threatened him in some way or another, couldn't find the details of exactly what he threatened him with. But Dickey didn't budge. Even when people up the chain of military command urged Dickey to drop the matter, he still wouldn't let Genovese go. Instead, he managed to get Genovese shipped back to New York, where he would face charges related to, again, I'm pretty sure a murder that he had probably been involved with back in the 1930s. Now, upon arriving back in New York, Genovese was charged with that murder and pled not guilty, but the charges ended up being dismissed because several witnesses were conveniently killed. In the aftermath of the Allied invasion of Italy and the ending of Mussolini's fascist regime there, Italians in many areas increasingly lean towards supporting communist politicians at the polls. And this, of course, is no good from the American point of view. And so U.S. intelligence agents who were involved in the occupation of Italy during and in the immediate aftermath of World War II were very happy to keep employing the mafia, who tended to be, for a lot of reasons, staunchly anti-communist as a counterforce to suppress the influence of communism in Italy. Back in the States in 1946, Lucky Luciano's sentence was commuted, ironically, by Thomas Dewey himself, the very man who'd successfully busted Luciano and got him convicted, who was by then governor of New York now, commuted Luciano's sentence and so, after having served less than 10 years of his 30 to 50-year sentence, Luciano is let out. At the commutation hearing, ONI officers testified vaguely but favorably on behalf of Luciano, and Commander Haffenden himself wrote letters to Governor Dewey on behalf of Lucky Luciano. As a result of all this, Luciano was released... But he was booted out of the country, deported back to Italy. This was the first and perhaps highest profile of a whole bunch of other deportations, wherein the U.S. government in the aftermath of World War II actually deported over 100 other mobsters that had been living in America but had been born in Italy back to Italy, where they began immediately setting up operations for a massive international smuggling operation. According to writer Eric Desenhall, who wrote an article about Operation Underworld in the American Spectator that was largely positive and supportive of the whole thing, where Desenhall portrays Operation Underworld as showing how awesomely ruthless and nationalistic America's leaders used to be, how willing they were to do whatever it took to pursue Team America's interests. According to Desenhall, when some information about Operation Underworld was leaked to the public after the war, Commander Charles Haffenden of ONI was thrown under the bus and basically portrayed as just being a rogue agent who did something wrong, when in fact there's good reason to believe that he wasn't that at all. But Haffenden was the guy thrown under the bus for the whole thing, his reputation was ruined, and he was drummed out of ONI. And supposedly, in the aftermath of that, he became a dictaphone salesman and developed a bad drinking problem, and he died on Christmas in 1952. By the way, just as an aside, this is how Dezenhall ends his right-wing take on Operation Underworld's history, which, by the way, didn't at all touch on how this connection continued into the Cold War and resulted in so many awful side effects— But this is what Desenhall says, but this is his his mind, the takeaway of this whole story of America being friends with the mafia and working with them during World War II Quote, the value of Operation Underworld can be legitimately debated. What cannot is how far our leaders were once willing to go to defeat our country's enemies. There was a time, bada bing, when even a mobster's contribution was an offer we couldn't refuse, end quote. And all I've got to say is that is some great, simple-minded right-wing jingoism and collectivism. Now, in a formal sense, one could say that Operation Underworld, meaning the specific cooperation of La Cosa Nostra with U.S. intelligence for purposes related to World War II, ended with the end of World War II. But the alliance between Uncle Sam's intelligence agencies and the mafia continued under the auspices of the Cold War. During and after World War II, heroin addiction in the U.S. had, believe it or not, almost completely disappeared, because of the way in which the war itself disrupted all of the networks that had previously supplied it. Furthermore, the Sicilian Mafia had been, like we said, heavily damaged by Mussolini's regime, and it looked like the end of large-scale heroin problems in the U.S. might be there in, you know, 1945. But instead, as historian Alfred McCoy puts it, quote, The government, through the CIA and its wartime predecessor, the OSS, created a situation that made it possible for the Sicilian-American mafia and the Corsican underworld to revive the international narcotics traffic. These operations were the first signs of the CIA's willingness to form tactical anti-communist alliances with major narcotics dealers, whether in the cities of Europe or the jungles of the Third World. During the 40 years of the Cold War, several of the CIA's covert action allies were to play a significant role in sustaining a global narcotics industry that supplied the United States." The U.S. government's alliance with the Italian Mafia, which was made originally to help with the Allied invasion of Italy, continued after the war for the purpose of opposing communism in various places. The same relationship also began to exist between the U.S. intelligence and the Corsican mob, which is separate from the Sicilian mob. It's a little bit of a different thing. Corsica, if you don't know, another island in the Mediterranean like Sicily. And it's a place that kind of Intermediate, I would say, is my impression, between Italian and French culture. It's an island that culturally, historically, has basically been Italian, but has for quite some time been politically part of France. Of course, it's probably most famous for being where Napoleon was from. And the Corsicans had their own mob organization, which is different in various ways from the Sicilians, but increasingly they became close allies and business associates of the Sicilian mob. And in particular, the Corsicans were very useful to both American intelligence and the Sicilian mafia because they controlled to a great extent the key French port city of Marseille. And there they increasingly operated it as a central hub of the narcotics trade. In Marseille, the CIA and the Corsican mob worked together to end two dockworker strikes in the aftermath of World War II. And they also worked together more broadly to fight against communist influence in local politics. A lot of the voters, a lot of the working-class people in Marseille, leaned hard left in the aftermath of World War II. And just like the Sicilian Mafia was a useful ally in the United States to minimize communist influence in Italy after the war, so the Corsican mob in Marseille and some other places in France, seemed like a very useful ally for the same purpose there. The Corsican mob also enjoyed protection from French intelligence and police for many years, at the very least in terms of benign neglect and, and ignoring them, and in some cases perhaps active assistance. And the Corsicans worked together with the Italian mafia to smuggle in Turkish opium, To their labs in Marseille, in France, where it would be processed and converted to heroin and then exported, much of it to the United States, which quickly revived that American heroin addiction problem that had almost been extinguished due to the circumstances of World War II. It came back, and it came back with interest, it came back with a vengeance. According to historian Alfred McCoy, there were an estimated 20,000 heroin addicts in the United States around the end of World War II. By 1952, it had spiked up to 60,000, so an increase by a factor of three in just seven years. And by 1965, it was up to an estimated 150,000 heroin addicts in the United States, a sevenfold increase in just two decades. And during that time, the corsican slash narcotics operations bringing this opium from Turkey through Marseille and then to the United States didn't suffer a single major arrest or seizure. Again, U.S. intelligence did what they could to give these people the freedom to do this for their political Cold War reasons, and French intelligence and, and French government authorities felt the same way. In addition, for a long time, the Corsican mob in France while they processed and exported heroin, they didn't sell it inside of France. So they had this sort of like gentleman's agreement with the French government where we'll look the other way and let you do this. And uh, as long as you're not creating heroin addicts in France itself, and you're only exporting, that's fine. And so, you know, this is some of the real life history stuff behind things like the French connection. Between 1948 and 1972, this Corsican slash Sicilian alliance provided the bulk of the heroin that was imported into the u.s the federal bureau of narcotics the precursor to the dea estimated that 80 percent of american heroin of the heroin coming into the united states was produced by the corsicans in the early 1970s the corsican-run marseille heroin operation finally came under assault from the french government which, again, had for decades tolerated it because they wanted the Corsicans' help against the communists and because the Corsicans had abstained from selling heroin inside France itself. But by the early 70s, communist influence politically in France was less of a, of a fear than it had been in the late 40s and early 50s. And in addition to that, the younger generations of Corsican mobsters no longer respected those gentlemen's agreements, those rules against dealing inside France. So they had started to sell increasingly in France itself, and France was getting much more of a heroin problem. So in the early 70s, the French government, with the the support of the Nixon administration, as one of the most early major international operations of Nixon's war on drugs, they went hard after the Marseille drug operations. And they also put pressure on the Turkish government to get Turkey to crack down on the growing of the opium that was then being funneled through Marseille and turned into heroin. But before that happened, during the heyday of this narcotics operation in the 50s, 60s, much of the drugs that came into the United States came through Cuba and Florida, and if not through Cuba, through somewhere else in the Caribbean, but Cuba was one of the top places that it kind of funneled through. Meyer Lansky was an important figure at the top of a lot of this food chain, and he had relocated to Miami Beach in the 1930s, and after World War II spent most of his time either there or in Cuba itself, where of course the American Mafia owned and operated most of the best resorts, clubs, and casinos. Lansky had cultivated very good and useful business relationships with the Traficante family, who were the top mafiosi in Tampa, Florida, and who did a lot of stuff in Cuba as well. By the way, Lansky was involved in getting Fulgencio Batista, the Cuban dictator, back into power in Cuba after he had been out of power for a while in 1952. The mob just flat-out loved Batista, because he played ball their way. And a lot of the stuff depicted in the movie Godfather II regarding mob operations in pre-Castro Cuba is based on real stuff. In Havana, Lansky owned and the Traficantes managed most of the casinos, and in Miami, Lansky controlled a lot of illegal betting and also owned some hotels and other things as well. And it was Lansky who got the mob to declare Miami, in their terms, a free city, which meant that no one family or syndicate would be allowed to take it over and monopolize it. After World War II, Lucky Luciano, not long after being deported to Italy, secretly relocated from Italy to Cuba, and he came there so that he could set up an important operation. He came to Havana just as Havana was becoming a key hub of mafia operations. Eventually, the Federal Narcotics Bureau got wind of Luciano's presence, and official reports show that they realized what Luciano's presence in Havana meant for the narcotics trade. They did manage to put pressure on the Cuban government and get Luciano kicked out of the country and sent back to Italy, but the horse was already out of the barn, so to speak, because Luciano had already, by the time he was kicked out of Cuba, accomplished his task there of putting in place a smuggling operation to ship heroin to America from Europe via the Caribbean. Now, throughout Much of the Cold War, U.S. intelligence agencies on many occasions cooperated with various organized crime outfits in Europe, in Asia, and in Latin America, using these mobs as, like with the Corsicans in Marseille, anti-communist bulwarks. And they seem to have, in return, at the least, created as, I think historian Alfred McCoy refers to them, enforcement-free zones for these groups to operate in. And in some instances may have crossed the line into, in some ways, actively aiding various drug production and smuggling operations. And it seemed like a natural alliance, because very often organized crime has a lot of influence or even total control over things like unions that communists would often look to infiltrate. And so it's like you get the mafia thugs to chase out the communist thugs. But then part of the side effect is you have to kind of pay off the mafia by letting them do a lot of the things they want to do. But the alliances and the collaborations between intelligence and organized crime figures seems to have been something that kind of connected them on a deeper and more visceral level than just a pragmatic enemy of my enemy is my friend sort of a thing. Alfred McCoy, in his book The Politics of Heroin, writes, quote, in the context of the Cold War, there was a similar affinity between covert operatives and criminal syndicates. Most fundamentally, both are practitioners of what one retired CIA operative has called the clandestine arts, that is, the basic skill of operating outside the normal channels of civil society. Among all the institutions of modern society, only intelligence agencies and criminal syndicates are capable of carrying out covert operations without a trace. As our knowledge of the Cold War grows, the list of traffickers who served the CIA lengthens to include Corsican syndicates, nationalist Chinese irregulars, Lao generals, Afghan warlords, Haitian colonels, Panamanian generals, Honduran smugglers, and Nicaraguan Contra commanders. These alliances may represent only a fraction of CIA operations, But they had a significant impact on the narcotics traffic, end quote. Again, various agencies of the U.S. government and key personnel in those agencies and in some cases sort of special operations military types for years treated the mafia and other useful organized crime syndicates with attitudes that ranged from benign neglect to, in at least some cases, we know of active collaboration. Just one of the most notorious examples of the Mafia getting kind of a free pass for a while. For decades, FBI Kingpin J. Edgar Hoover repeatedly, publicly, denied that such a thing as the Mafia even existed. And he never even admitted that they existed until 1957, when the Mafia's now-famous Appalachian meeting in upstate New York... The meeting of top mob leaders, by the way, arranged by Vito Genovese, was discovered by state law enforcement. And this, of course, resulted in serious and undeniable public exposure of the American Mafia in the media and did also result in the prosecution of several key mob figures, including, eventually, Genovese himself. And at that point, Hoover's hand was forced. He could no longer keep repeating the mantra that there was no such thing as the Mafia. Now, the fact that Hoover kept up this facade is in and of itself very interesting. One wonders why Hoover refused to acknowledge that the mafia even existed for so many years. After all, remember, this is the guy, J. Edgar Hoover, who spied on and had the dirt on literally everybody who was anybody in America. There's absolutely no reason to think that he didn't know for sure all kinds of intricate details about the mafia and key individuals in it long before 1957 my belief is that like the agents involved in oni and the cia men who also worked with the mafia on occasion hoover saw the mafia as a much lesser evil than international communism and he was probably aware at least to some extent of the intelligence agencies work with the mob, and so Hoover was willing to keep the FBI focused away from the mafia as much as possible and was willing to look like an idiot for years, publicly denying that the mafia even existed when plenty of people across America knew otherwise. I mean, people who just lived in certain neighborhoods could have told you not only that the mafia was real, they could tell you who some of the key guys were and like where they hung out. And to think that somebody like J. Edgar Hoover, who's spying on everybody all the time, didn't know full well a lot of this stuff is ridiculous. And even after Appalachian forced Hoover to admit the mafia existed, even after that, though, he was reluctant to really commit much in the way of FBI resources and manpower to investigating the mafia until several key individuals in Congress, including the Kennedy brothers started to have investigations and this was amped up in a big way when john f kennedy took the white house in 1961 and appointed his brother bobby kennedy who if anything was even more anti-mob than john to the post of attorney general making him technically the boss of j edgar hoover and there was a lot of animosity as the kennedy brothers began forcing hoover's hand and making him investigate the american mafia so that was part of this sort of breakdown in the gentlemen's agreement between the U.S. government and La Cosa Nostra, but it didn't break down and end overnight. Various sorts of collaboration continued for years long after that between especially the more clandestine parts of the U.S. government. But again, you can look up some of the congressional investigations and hearings in the late 1950s, even before JFK took the White House where they were investigating various mafia figures and mob-connected union leaders such as Jimmy Hoffa, etc. Hoffa also, of course, hated the Kennedys for the same reason the top mobsters hated the Kennedys. And this was the beginning of this deep mafia hatred of the Kennedy brothers. And that hatred is well-documented and beyond dispute. Perhaps a bit more controversially, that hatred is the reason why some people, myself included, suspect that there may have been some degree of mafia involvement in the killing of JFK. And since we know for a fact that the mafia did work with the CIA on various projects in the 50s and 60s, and since we know that many in the CIA also hated Kennedy during his presidency— It's not nearly at all as far-fetched as it might seem at first, if you've never heard this before, to think that just as elements of ONI and the mafia had collaborated against Mussolini and against Italian communists, it's also quite plausible, at least, that some elements of the CIA and the mafia may have collaborated on taking out Kennedy. But that is a whole other gigantic can of worms that, if I ever get to, certainly deserves more than... A few minutes of this episode to give it justice but i'll just say a few things more um, right now and maybe a few more things towards the end of this episode related to the to these suspicions at least a few things i'll say here right now for sure the mafia as well as the cia united fruit company and some other american fruit sugar and oil companies were royally pissed off when castro took over in cuba and seized their assets and began booting these sorts of Organizations out of Cuba. And all these interests, the mob, U.S. clandestine services, and certain corporations, had a common interest in opposing Castro. And as we eventually did learn, beyond dispute, these different interest groups did collaborate with each other in various ways on anti Castro operations in the 60s and probably for a while thereafter as well. And certainly all these groups that had all this hatred for Castro, some of whom already hated the Kennedy brothers anyway, even before all this Cuba stuff started going down. All those same groups were definitely, to put it mildly, understatement of the year, more than a little disappointed when JFK chose not to send in a conventional U.S. military invasion to try to salvage the failed Bay of Pigs invasion when it turn bad. And these same groups were also, again, understatement of the year, disappointed when Kennedy peacefully resolved the Cuban Missile Crisis, a resolution which included a promise by Kennedy not to invade the island. Though to be fair, covert ops to kill Castro and carry out sabotage in Cuba continued under Kennedy, but that was not sufficient to a lot of these people who wanted a full-scale American invasion and regime change. Well, anyway, getting back to the story of the mafia itself and what was happening there by the early 60s, Lucky Luciano died in 1962, and with Vito Genovese out of the picture having been busted in the late 50s after Appalachian, increasingly mob boss Santo Traficante Jr. was running the American mob's drug importation business sometimes called the godfather of Tampa, Traficante was very successful for many years, in part because he was very good at playing things low-key, at sort of avoiding all the publicity and notoriety and attention that brought down so many other mob bosses over the years. Alfred McCoy writes this of Traficante, quote, Avoiding the ostentatious lifestyle of Cadillacs and diamonds that was so attractive to many mafiosi, Traficante cultivated the austerity of the old Sicilian Dons. But unlike the old Sicilian Dons, he managed the organization with reason rather than force, and was one of the few major mafia leaders whose family was not torn apart by internal power struggles or vendettas with other families." even though he ran what was probably the largest narcotic smuggling operation in the world at the time, his outfit was so well organized and he was so well insulated that Traficante himself was never anywhere near any drugs. And in fact, Santo Traficante died in 1987 at the age of 72, having never served any time in his life in an American prison. In the late 1960s, Just before the Turkish-through-Marseille drug pipeline that I mentioned earlier came under serious assault, Santo Traficante Jr. realized that Southeast Asia's so-called Golden Triangle region was emerging as a better alternative source, since it was already producing almost three-quarters of the world's illegal opium being produced at the time. In addition... Another happy coincidence, because of the long French colonial presence in Southeast Asia, our good friends the Corsican mob had already had a long presence in Laos and Vietnam. So, in 1968, at the height of America's war in Vietnam, Santo Traficante Jr. went to Asia and personally visited Saigon, Hong Kong, and Singapore. There, from what we know, he seems to have done what Luciano did when he briefly visited Cuba after World War II, put in place the deals and alliances, and the organizational infrastructure to carry out a massive narcotic smuggling operation. In addition to that, in this area of Southeast Asia, in kind of the highlands, the areas that James C. Scott refers to as Zomia, basically, both the French military and the American CIA had already, for years, forged anti-communist alliances with these highland tribal peoples, whose economy was largely based on opium cultivation, and to them, like, opium was almost, you know, the only commodity they had. And so, if you wanted to get them on your side and use them against the communists, you couldn't simultaneously shut down the opium production and smuggling. You had to, at the very least, ignore it, and in fact, as the CIA increasingly did during America's involvement in Vietnam, you have to get actively involved in helping them in many cases. The CIA saw these alliances with opium-producing highland warlords as a force multiplier effect in the Cold War. And they also seem to have taken some sort of pride in the whole thing as well, some sort of atavistic rush from working with these sorts of people. As Alfred McCoy writes of this, quote, The CIA's complicity was not, like that of the French, a matter of mere financial pressure. He's referring by the way back to the French involvement in this which oftentimes was simply about making money. Continuing. It represented at a superficial level a bid for an increase in combat efficiency, at a more primal level, the embrace of the warlord and his opium trade was a perverse personal triumph, the act of a machismo warrior casting off the bureaucratic controls of his commanders half a world away." End quote. One result of this combination of the CIA, the Corsican mob, and the American mafia getting involved in various ways with Southeast Asia's opium warlords was the massive heroin epidemic among American GIs in Vietnam beginning in 1970. Another result of this whole thing was how quickly drugs from the Golden Triangle, more than made up for the losses in supply... That happened when the French government shut down the Turkey-Marseille-Caribbean pipeline for opium in 1972 that I mentioned before. In the 1970s, during the first major wave of widespread public interest into things like assassination conspiracies and and exposing government secret misdeeds like the CIA's MKUltra project, during that exact time period, George H.W. Bush spent one year, from January 1976 to January 1977, as director of the CIA. Of course, if you read Russ Baker's excellent book Family of Secrets, you'll find out his association with the CIA went back long before that, but anyway. During his tenure as CIA director, Bush sent an interesting memo, an internal memo, asking about a report from years ago About a visit by Jack Ruby to none other other than Tampa godfather Santo Traficante Jr., which, aside from the fact that that's a weird thing that Jack Ruby met with Santo Traficante Jr., it's also a weird thing for a director of the CIA who served in that job for less than a full year, it's a few days short of a full year, to look into an obscure meeting potentially between these people over a decade prior. And again, the fact that Jack Ruby, who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, was so closely connected to mob figures like Traficante and Sam Giancana and others, all of whom hated Kennedy's guts with a passion before he was killed, is interesting in and of itself, too. But then the fact that CIA director George H.W. Bush is asking about this while he's CIA director is kind of interesting. Now, a few years after Poppy Bush, as CIA director, had asked for the info on that meeting, Traficante admitted in testimony to the House Select Committee on Assassinations that he, Traficante, had been recruited by fellow mobsters Sam Giancana and John Roselli into a plot to assassinate Castro as part of the CIA's Operation Mongoose. Traficante, by the way, has been linked to the Kennedy assassination in several different versions of JFK assassination conspiracy theories, as has Sam Giancana and John Roselli, I believe, as well. Sam Giancana was shot to death by an unknown assailant in his home in Illinois in 1975, shortly before he was scheduled to testify to the church committee in Congress about some of this stuff. John Roselli was called before the church committee in April of 1976 to testify about the Kennedy assassination, three months later, he was called again but didn't show up. He was missing. The FBI investigated his disappearance, and they discovered his body several months later. It was in Dumbfounding Bay near Miami. Roselli had been strangled and shot, then had his legs chopped off and been stuffed into a 55-gallon drum and tossed out in the bay. The FBI's official conclusion was he had most likely been killed by other mobsters, over disputes having to do with casino revenues. Bill Bonanno, son of notorious mob boss Joseph Bonanno, wrote in his memoirs that were published in 1999 that in a conversation he'd once had with Roselli, Roselli had admitted involvement in the Kennedy assassination. And in fact, Roselli had actually been one of the shooters. In addition to that, at least one witness claimed that Santo Travicante said some suspicious things Prior to Kennedy's assassination, that indicated at the very least that Traficante had some sort of foreknowledge of it, if not outright active involvement. An interesting guy who often acted as a go between between the CIA and the mafia during these early Cold War decades was a guy named Robert Mayhew. His last name, by the way, if you're interested, spelled M A H E U. Mayhew was a former FBI agent who worked for a while as a freelance contractor for the CIA, basically doing things agency personnel weren't supposed to do, and who also worked for Howard Hughes. And there's a lot of stuff about Mayhew and his involvement with Hughes and with the sort of clandestine parts of the American Deep State in the book I've often mentioned, The Yankee Cowboy War. Mayhew was the bridge, in other words, between the agency itself and people like Traficante, Giancana, and Roselli. And in testimony before the church committee in 1975, Mayhew admitted his involvement in a CIA plot to kill Castro using mafia hitmen. And if you ever read the fascinating historical novel by James Ellroy, the author of L.A. Confidential, my favorite novel of his, it's entitled American Tabloid. And it is an historical fiction account of the years leading up to the Kennedy assassination from the point of view of people who in various ways are connected to it. And it is fiction. I'm not saying it's the absolute truth, but a lot of the things that are in it are at least based on things we know. And then, you know, filling in the gaps for a fuller fictional account. And in that novel, American tabloid, One of the key protagonists is a character named Pete Bondurant, and he definitely seems to me to be at least partially based on the real life figure of Robert Mayhew. Whether any of these people I've just been mentioning were involved in the assassination of John F. Kennedy hasn't been officially admitted, of course. But the involvement of these characters with a plot to kill Castro has been absolutely verified by documents the CIA declassified in 2007, and of course, a lot of this was already admitted to the Church Committee three decades before. And this shows that the alliance between some elements of the U.S. intelligence apparatus and some elements of the mafia was definitely still operating in various ways in the 1960s. Whether or not this alliance between U.S. intelligence and the Sicilian-American mafia continued after that, and to be honest, at this point I've not dug into the details of that relationship after the 1960s in much detail, so don't have an informed opinion at this moment, but whether or not this alliance continued after the 60s, it's definitely quite clear that U.S. intelligence has definitely forged alliances with plenty of other international criminal syndicates in various places in the world, but especially in and around and having to do with the mountainous narcotics producing regions of Asia and then starting a little bit later, Latin America. And you can see the work of Gary Webb and also Alfred McCoy, whom I've quoted a bunch of times in this episode as great places to start digging into that story. But this is basically where we'll leave this tale for now. Like I said, this is by no means my final word or the full story on this thing. But I think I've definitely shared enough to give you a solid understanding of the fundamentals of this whole thing. And have at least scratched the surface and made some suggestions as to the many, many ways in which these sorts of alliances between the clandestine services of the state on the one hand and the private sector organized crime on the other have had negative consequences for lots of people all over the world and no doubt continue to do so as we speak. For example, recent reports on American military involvement in aiding opium production and warlords in Afghanistan and the undeniable fact that heroin production from Afghanistan-grown poppies has exploded since the U.S. invaded and ousted the Taliban from power, and the stories we increasingly get that heroin addiction has been on a big spike in the U.S. in recent years, all this stuff together shows that these tactics of allying with black market drug smugglers, this sort of stuff is still a top tool in Uncle Sam's covert toolbox. Now, as many of you listening probably already know, I'm, of course, in favor of completely ending anything like the war on drugs, legalizing everything, and I'm in favor of doing that for both pragmatic and for philosophical, moral sorts of reasons. I'm for just having drugs be another commodity, another product, and in a free and legal marketplace— I think a lot of the worst side effects of having a war on drugs and as a result having the black market and these sorts of criminal syndicates supplying them would be very, very significantly decreased or perhaps even in the long run eliminated entirely. I think, though, that there's a whole lot of reasons why the state is not going to give up the war on drugs, the prohibition of drugs, without a real fight. And part of it, at least, I think, is that the deep state or the permanent state or whatever you want to call it wants to keep these things illegal for a whole bunch of reasons, even though I think they're definitely intelligent enough to know that it would be way better for people's health and people's freedom to end these prohibitions. But of course, the health and freedom of the average citizen is probably not even remotely on their radar of important priorities and concerns. I think they keep these things illegal for a whole bunch of different reasons. But I think that definitely a part of it is that they get so much leverage from these highly desired and, in some cases, addictive commodities being illegal. Because since they're illegal, that means they will be provided, but just by the black market and by these criminal syndicates and that sort of thing. And one of the ways the deep state gets a lot of leverage for various things is from making alliances with organized crime syndicates whenever it's politically expedient to some other goal they're trying to accomplish. So, Team America and the mob. Maybe not really strange bedfellows at all. Rather, given the similarities, in many ways, between the American deep state and something like La Cosa Nostra, maybe we should view this relationship as simply historical evidence that birds of a feather really, really do tend to flock together. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever but to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher, and you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past, so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.